friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Or obi Wat for short. I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother David. David, do you call it obi Wat for short? I do not call it that. Ever. Oh, oh, just me then. Okay, well, I guess I, I, I guess maybe we should get to the history part of this, since apparently short forms are not what's happening here today. So, David, do you have a history story to tell us? It's just possible that I might. Then I'll ask the question I always ask to start the podcast. It can be summarized as, Obi-Wat, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's spring, 1660, and... Pierre Radisson, the famous fur trader and explorer, is coming down the Ottawa River headed towards Montreal after another one of his famous voyages. As he passes a small bend in the river, he sees before him a fort burnt to the ground. Around it, corpses have been left unburied, but as the battle was so long ago, They've been torn beyond recognition by the local wildlife. David, this would be a shocking scene. No matter who you are, no matter what the circumstances are, I can imagine for a fur trader coming back from the wilderness to come upon this fort completely burnt to the ground, desecrated bodies, that must have been a truly traumatic sight to see. Definitely not something that you're hoping to see on an otherwise peaceful exploratory voyage. But Radisson is not as shocked as he might have been because he knows that there's a bitter war raging in this region between the Huron tribe a tribe that is allied with the French, and the Iroquois, another tribe of natives who are at war with them. All right, so we have two indigenous tribes at war with one another, the Huron and the Iroquois. Would Radisson know where he was, Dave? Would he have been expecting to come upon this fort, obviously? Well, here's the interesting bit. Radisson would have known this territory very well. This was very close Montreal, which by this point was a well-established town, almost a city. But when he left two years earlier, exploring and trading in the farthest reaches of what was then known to Europeans, this fort, now burnt to the ground, didn't exist. Wow. So just two years ago, he left... There wasn't a fort there. There's now not only been a fort, but it's been destroyed, burnt back down to the ground. So definitely when he gets back to Montreal, he's gonna ask about this, try and find out what happened. And as it turns out, that's exactly the right place for him to be to find out what the story is here. And why is that, David? Because this fort that he has stumbled across entirely to his shock was built 
by a young man named Dollard des Ormeaux, a French colonist who had come to Montreal to settle and then led a small expedition out into the wilderness deliberately to confront the Iroquois. So he wanted to go to war with the Iroquois. That's why he built this fort? Well, there's an interesting story to that. This is the interesting point. Delard des Ormeaux arrived in Montreal, in New France, in 1658. A year later, in 1659, he's living in Montreal, and a panic sweeps the colony. There are reports that a massive Iroquois army, larger than anyone has seen them be able to form before, is coming up from the south, which is, they live somewhat to the south of this region, coming up, and they're on a campaign of conquest, and the rumor in the city, the rumor in Montreal, is that their target is Montreal. They want to seize Montreal. And the people are looking for a hero, for defense. But the governor of the colony is saying, maybe we should evacuate. Montreal is not really a defensible position. If there really is this massive army coming, maybe we should just leave. Wow, so I can see why people would be upset. They think there's a giant army coming to conquer their city. The mayor is saying, let's just hightail it out of here. This doesn't seem like a good situation, David. Of course, we have the advantage of hindsight. Was there a giant Iroquois army coming to conquer Montreal? Well, there was definitely an Iroquois army. And one of the ways we know that is because Pierre Radisson, when he came back, didn't encounter a fort full of somewhat sheepish guys who'd gone out to try and confront the Iroquois and found that there was nobody there. He found a little fort that had been burnt to the ground. So Desamos and his crew, they went out to build this fort. Was it intended to defend Montreal or to start a new settlement? So Dollard Desarmos brings up in public in Montreal, he feels instead of fleeing the city and instead of trying to defend Montreal because the governor's right, it's not in a great position to be defended, he thinks they should create a new forward base, a fort where they can intercept any Iroquois army that's coming for Montreal specifically, but somewhere that'll be more defensible. And the trouble is, everybody sort of agrees, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, you should do it, but nobody wants to go. I guess with hindsight, not going turned out to be the right decision, David. Definitely Yes, not a lot of people with the benefit of hindsight would have been volunteering for this one. So where is this fort he wants to build? Well, that's an interesting question. We know it was on the Ottawa River. We mostly know that from Radisson's account. As you're going to hear very shortly, we don't have any really accurate reports of what happened once 
Desormeaux and his men had left Montreal, we've got a few short reports from various sources. We'll talk about that. But we don't have an in-depth report of where they went or what they did. And there's no archaeological record of exactly where his fort would have been. But somewhere on the Ottawa River and downstream on the St. Lawrence from Montreal is about as precise as we can pinpoint it. All right, so he's got a plan to build this defensible fort. Presumably, he's got a spot to build it. How does he convince some guys to join him in this endeavor? Well, he goes recruiting everywhere he can. He makes his appeal at church in Montreal. It's a good place to do it, of course, because that's the center of social life in a very Catholic French colony. And the one thing he's got going for him is that as he is eager to point out to everybody involved, if they win, if they go out, find an enemy army coming from them, confront them, and win, the Iroquois usually travel carrying a variety of, you know, useful goods and equipment. And if they have to retreat in a hurry, it's entirely possible that for the people who are willing to take this risk, this might be a profit-making venture. Get rich through looting. So with his twin appeals of patriotism and defense of the colony and hey, maybe they'll be in cash in it for us, he manages to raise a very small fort force. Just 14 guys sign up, but he decides that it's enough and sets out on what is going to be his confrontation with destiny. All right, so obviously they managed to get this fort up and built, David, but you said we don't have many accounts of what actually happened at this fort. We don't have many. But we do have two sort of partial accounts of what happened. So the first one is from one of the Hurons, one of the French native allies in the region. He gets back to his tribe and therefore back in contact with the French. And he reports that he was part of a band of 30 Huron warriors who were in the region, heard about this Dallard des Ormeaux guy going out, and since they were at war with the Iroquois, they sort of went over to see what he was up to and agreed to work with him on building the fort and got trapped when an Iroquois army arrived unexpectedly. And then there was a siege. They ran out of water, which was not good. They tried to fight their way out to the river, but they couldn't do it. There were too many Iroquois. They killed them in heaps. They, you know, definitely hundreds. He's very big on, you know, it wasn't just a disaster. But in the end, most of them died either in the breakout attempt or from thirst when they couldn't get at any water. Sounds like he might have been embellishing a little bit to make it sound not quite so bad for him and his mates. But that doesn't sound like it went very well for the Huron and the French defenders of this fort. I should stop here and note that that account, plus what was available from French sources, 
is and was the traditional account of what happened, everything, all the information that was available for a very long time to Canadian historians. And Delade des Ormeaux was a massive Quebecois hero in the time after after his death, all the way up until the 1960s. You don't hear about him so much anymore, but at various points, some cities in Quebec call Victoria Day, Dollard des Ormeaux Day, as a holiday. He's been on recruiting posters for the First World War. There are books written about him, novels. He was a very important figure in Franco-Canadian consciousness. And this story, this epic story of a guy finding out that there's a massive native invasion force coming for his newfound adopted city, leading his tiny, bold band of comrades out to confront them. And then even though they all died, uh, which isn't great, obviously, but even so, Montreal didn't get invaded, so it must have worked, right? Like, they didn't want Montreal to get invaded, and it didn't, so they must have won. And he became remembered as a hero, as a huge hero. And it's only in the 1960s when that changes. Why does it change in the 1960s, David? That's 300 years later. Well, what changes isn't so much anything about Dollard des Ormeaux. What changes is how Canadian historians do history. Because in the 1960s, for the first time, there's a real effort on the part of Canadian historians to actually consider even just a little bit the opinions and the perspectives of the actual native peoples who lived in this country and not just the Europeans who came to colonize it. Right, so now they're looking at the other side of things. Is there new information that comes to light, David? Well, the first thing that comes to light isn't new information at all. It's very old information. It's just thinking about it differently makes it seem very different. Because it was well known to military historians all along that the Huron tribe lost its war with the Iroquois lost it very badly and that the summer of 1660 was one of the campaigns when the Iroquois did seize a bunch of the larger towns of the Huron people and so if you stop and think about it from an Iroquois perspective and you don't assume they must have been determined to attack Montreal but you think they must have, you know, you look at what happened and say, what did they want based on what they did? Suddenly it looks like they weren't gunning for Montreal at all. Why would they want to attack Montreal right away when all of these Huron towns are closer 
better targets that are more related to the war they're actually fighting. Right. So maybe the whole Montreal thing was really just a panic and a bit of uh, self-importance on the part of the people of Montreal when, in fact, the Iroquois were, as you note, really at war with the Huron. Exactly. Maybe tell us more, David, about how this unfolded for the Iroquois afterwards. Did they continue to attack Huron settlements? Obviously, they never attacked Montreal. How did this unfold? Well, the war between the Huron and the Iroquois ends with the Huron in terrible shape, driven back essentially onto the French colonies, onto their French allies, because they simply can't hold out against the Iroquois' more powerful military forces. And then the French launch a few larger and better organized campaigns than this early one and have a few battles with the Iroquois that are ugly for both sides and eventually it all gets negotiated out with a treaty, trade relations are established and there's never really a climactic showdown between the French and the Iroquois which makes sense if you think that the Iroquois never really wanted to be at war with the French. So how does this all shake out, David? Give us the uh, final accounting on the part of historians here who are looking back at this and trying to figure out, were they heroes? Was this a win for the Iroquois or the Huron? Who were the big winners here? Well, first, I just want to mention that most of what changed people's perspectives on all of this in the 1960s wasn't new information, just a different way of looking at old information, and that's true. But digging around, there actually was a little bit of new information to be found, and eventually it was found. Eventually being 300 years later. There's a Dutch colony New Amsterdam. You might know it as New York. You can make it there. You can make it anywhere, David. That's right. It was active at this time, and they were trading with the Iroquois. That's where the Iroquois were getting their iron and firearms and other European technology to sustain a campaign against the Huron, who obviously were getting equivalent technology from the French. But there's a report in the archives in Holland telling what had happened that year from the perspective of the colony of New Amsterdam. And one thing they mention is that they were trading with the Iroquois and they knew that there was a war going on. So they specifically asked for information about what had happened. And most of the information they got was reports of battles with the Huron and towns seized from the Huron. And there's also a report of an attack on a little fort on the Ottawa River, which the Huron had just built that year for some reason. And this report is very different from the report we've got from the Huron warrior who broke out. It does mention 
encountering a fort and besieging it, starving it out. But it doesn't so much bring up anything like a climactic final battle fighting their way out towards the river in a desperate plight. And it also doesn't report hundreds upon hundreds of Iroquois casualties. In point of fact, it says 14 dead, 31 wounded. Now, it's impossible to know if that's more or less accurate than the reports from the French and Huron perspective. And certainly the Iroquois would not have wanted to make the Dutch believe that they were having heavy losses or losing because that might impact the support they were getting from the Dutch. But it's just interesting that it presents in many ways a confirmation of what we know about this confrontation, but with a very different perspective and with very different numbers. So it seems, David, like both sides might have been making things sound a little bit better for themselves. Which, if you study history, is not at all unusual to find out if you're lucky enough to have sources from two different sides, you may well find out both of them like to embellish a little bit. Just human nature, I guess. Thanks for telling us this story, David. Always happy to share these things, Neil. And we certainly are happy to share them. Be sure to follow us on social media where we share all sorts of things. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at WhenArtThou. Obrother.ca is our website or ObrotherWhenArtThou at Outlook.com if you want to send us an email. And David, we like to usually play a quiz or do something fun at the end of these podcasts. We do. And a couple of podcasts ago, we had some uh, Tinder profiles from historical figures. That was in episode 25, The Emperor versus the Desert Queen. Great episode. Go back and listen to the whole episode. But at the end, we played a quiz, which was Tinder profiles of famous characters. Today, David, I've got some more social media from famous characters. This time, I've got the Facebook profile status updates, Facebook status updates from a few historical figures. Care to take a guess? I suppose I could give it a try. All right, our first Facebook status update here. Uh, This one came from a guy. He says, heading to the theater with the missus, got a private box. Woo! Please tell me that's not from Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, that was his last status update. We'll never know what he thought of the play. How tragic. Our next Facebook one says, um, Hey guys, has anyone ever been to Elba? Are the beaches any good? I suppose Napoleon I would have been worried about that. Yeah, this was Napoleon, so uh, hopefully he got some good reviews there on his Facebook for Elba. Our next one's from another guy here. He says, uh, painted a portrait of my wife yesterday, but she hates it because she thinks the eyes are in all the wrong places. She told me to stick to landscapes and pictures of lighthouses. Maybe she's right. I'm honestly not certain, but perhaps Pablo Picasso? That's it. He did have a trouble sometimes getting the eyes in the right places on faces and noses and mouths and sort of the Picasso thing. All right, we have another Facebook status here. Everybody's picking apart my words about cake. Clearly you knew I was joking. Use context clues snowflakes. 
I don't know why they even let Marie Antoinette onto social media. I know, judging by that post, uh, she's getting quite upset there, calling people snowflakes. Just, just not good. Last one for you, David. This one's great. Had a great dinner. Judas was acting weird. Still good to hang out with the squad. Jesus of Nazareth. That is our last update from Facebook historical figures. We hope you will check out Oh Brother When Art Thou on Facebook and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for playing along, David. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening. 